0: Today's reading comes from Luke 22, uh, 39 to 46. It says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. We're beginning a, a short series today entitled The Cup, the Cross, and the Crown, As we prepare our hearts for Easter and to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. And we'll be looking at three different texts over the next three weeks from the Gospel of Luke. And our hope in this time as we look back at this story that for many of us is a familiar story. Our hope is that we would settle into this Gospel story so deeply... That we might see Jesus fresh and anew in our lives and in our hearts. And when we begin to read and to study this story, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, all of these details come racing at you as you see different pieces of history beginning to fit together. It's as if all of history was pointing to and waiting for this moment of the passion. Particularly this week that we will be looking at. This week where there are so many different details that are coming together. Beginning with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the Last Supper with His disciples. When He would display what servant leadership really looks like within the kingdom of God by washing his disciples' feet. And then he would institute the Lord's Supper and what we, the communion meal. And then he would pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he would be arrested. And then many of you know the story from there. The trial, the scourging, the cross. And then finally, on the third day, when it seemed as if all hope was lost, the glorious resurrection. And so that's what we'll be building towards over the next few weeks. And here is our hope in looking at this story once again that we might move past our individual, our selfish, our oftentimes instantaneous mindset of Jesus, what do you have for me today? And instead, that we might simply see Jesus more clearly. That we would understand His story more deeply. That we would sense His love more closely. And so today, we we begin with a very disturbing passage of Scripture. A very dark passage of Scripture within this story that's called the cup. I wonder if you've ever found yourself at a place in life, at a place where the circumstances of your life don't satisfy the present desire of your heart. Have you ever been there? At a place where the circumstances of your life don't satisfy the present desires of your heart. Maybe you deeply want and long for something that God doesn't seem to deliver or to come through in or to provide for. What do you do in those moments? I can remember a very distinct season in ministry where I knew that my time in a particular ministry job was over. God had made that clear but yet God hadn't opened the next door, and it was a full year from the time in which I would struggle and know that my time was finished here, but yet God was calling me to be obedient for a full year, until another door would open, and I can remember that struggle and those circumstances. Wonder if you've ever found yourself in a similar circumstance. My guess is that many of us can identify with that kind of struggle at a place where the circumstances of our life don't satisfy the desires of our heart. In some ways, I think this is all of life. Waiting. We're always looking forward to something. Discontentment seems to stalk us in the human life. We're always looking for something that our present circumstances don't seem to align with the desires of our heart. Maybe um, you would say, you know, there are some things in our life that are good and true desires, even God-given desires. What do we do when those desires don't align with our present circumstances? Some of you find yourself single with a deep desire to be in relationship, in a marriage relationship. And it's more than a status, it's a longing, a burden, an ache. What, what do you do? Do you push your emotions to the side and do you act like they don't exist, causing them to come up in other unhealthy ways? Or do you change your circumstances? Do you make something happen? Do you say, I'm going to double down on dating websites and I'm going to lower my standards and I'm going to spend time with people who aren't Christians? How do you handle that? Maybe you're married and it's turned out that you brought far more baggage into the marriage relationship than what you intended from your family of origin. And you find that marriage is more painful than it is fun or exciting. How do you handle those types of circumstances? Do you put your head down? Do you dismiss your feelings? Do you say, I'm just going to stick it out? I'm just going to be committed to the idea of marriage? Or do you bail on the conflict? Do you change your circumstances? Do you say, I'm going to start over. I'm going to run from this struggle. Maybe some of you are in a career in which... You're like my friend who said, I never grew up wanting to be a lamp salesman, but I'm a lamp salesman. What do you do when your present circumstances don't align with the desires of your heart? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus teaches us what true faith looks like. Jesus doesn't deny his emotions. But he also doesn't manipulate his circumstances or take control. Instead, leaning into the will of an all-knowing God, we see that Jesus trusts. In this text, Jesus teaches us how to best trust the Father in those times of suffering in our lives. And if you don't know of suffering Live enough life and suffering will find you. And Jesus teaches us in this particular passage how to walk in the midst of suffering in what we would call the obedience of love. Look back at Luke 22 with me. Think for a moment what this must have been like for Jesus as he left the upper room with his disciples. And Luke picks up, As the story has been retold to him. And Luke shares with us. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. It's important for us to recognize as we do our best to try to identify with what Jesus must have been thinking and feeling. It's important for us to recognize that we can read this story and we can try to put ourselves in Jesus' place, but we'll never come close To fully understanding the dark and deeply disturbing final hours of his life. We'll never come close. Because up until this point, Jesus has always seemed cool and calm and collected. He's fully God and fully man. And he has up to this point, think back over his life, he has seemed fully in control. Think about some of the stories. He's sleeping on a boat while fishermen fear for their lives. And he wakes up and calms a storm of epic proportion. Think about the way in which Jesus was constantly confronted by the demonic. Demons seem to be coming from everywhere as Jesus, the one with power and authority and dominion, would overwhelm them. They were no match for Jesus. And the Pharisees, the religious, both political and socioeconomic and religious leaders of this day, those who were all influential, were constantly seeking to catch him in a mistake or to corner Jesus. And he seems to make them a laughing stock, refusing to step into their traps, constantly confounding them. And think about that. Think about Jesus and the way in which we we always see Jesus, what we always expect of Jesus, his ethos. Just what poured out of Jesus was that he always was in control, so it seemed. But not this night. On this evening, something very different was taking place. Jesus is facing something he has never faced before. The cup. In Hebrew scriptures, the cup is a metaphor for the wrath of God on human evil. It's an image of divine justice poured out on injustice. For example, if you turn to Ezekiel chapter 23, you'll see how the prophet warns in in verse 32 through 34. Ezekiel says, Thus says the Lord God, You shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out. And gnaw its shards and tear your breasts. Or take, for example, Isaiah 51, in which the prophet would warn in verse 22. Thus says your Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this metaphor of the cup, the wrath of God on human evil. And Tim Keller describes it this way in speaking of Jesus. He says, all his life, because of Jesus' eternal dance with his Father and the Spirit, whenever he turned to the Father, the Spirit flooded him with love. What happened visibly and audibly at Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration happened invisibly, inaudibly every time he prayed. But in the garden of Gethsemane, he turns to the Father and all he can see before him is wrath, the abyss, the chasm, the nothingness of the cup. We don't even recognize Jesus in this moment. There's nothing familiar about him in Luke's text in chapter 22. He's never been so troubled at a place of such struggle and uncertainty. It says in other gospel accounts, if you read the accounts of Matthew um, or of Mark, they're twice as long and and we see um, more details and we see the struggle a struggle in which he says that his soul is sorrowful to the point of death. Sorrowful to the point of death. Why? What could cause Jesus, the one who is always calm and collected and in charge, what could be, cause him to be so sorrowful to the point of death? Is it the knowledge of the cross Is it the physical suffering that he knows that he will face? I mean, certainly it seems that he is well aware of the fate that awaited him. He had just described his impending death to his disciples in the upper room during the time in which they took the communion meal. In fact, all of Scripture seems to point to the innocent and spotless lamb that would die for the sins of the world. From the moment that Jesus, as a young boy, knew the Scriptures and understood the prophecies, He knew that the cross awaited Him. He knew that He was the spotless Lamb. Ever since the time of the Exodus from from Egypt, 1400 years earlier, think about it. The Jews would mark this time of the year by slitting the throat. Slitting the throat of a cute, little, innocent, spotless lamb. What did that lamb do? Cute. Not old enough to hurt anyone. And letting the blood drain out. And being reminded that something had to die in order for forgiveness to be offered. That true love demands justice. There is no such thing as love without justice. And God demanded payment for sins. And the Israelites knew that well. They knew that they were saved at the Passover. They celebrated it because their doorpost was painted with the blood of this little lamb as they left Egypt. And the death angel passed over their homes. And their firstborn was saved. And the scriptures tell us that all throughout the land, not just the firstborn of those who were humans, but even of the animals died, and there was great wailing all throughout Egypt. And Jesus and his disciples had just completed the meal that reminds them of the redemption that would take place because of the lamb. And all the while, Jesus is reminded that he will be the final once and forever Passover lamb who will die for the sins of the world. Innocent, spotless, perfect. The only son of God who would be sacrificed on a cruel cross, whose blood would be poured out for the sins of the world. But all of this is not the cause for Jesus' soul to be sorrowful to the point of death. This is not what caused Jesus to literally sweat drops of blood like a weightlifter who has burst blood vessels in the agonizing pressure of their workout. No, Jesus is literally being pressed emotionally and mentally and physically and spiritually because he is at a place in his humanity where it would seem that the circumstances of his life may not satisfy the present desire of his heart. See, Jesus is not fearful for death. This he has expected. He has prophesied. He has come in order to accomplish. But instead, Jesus is facing the utter aloneness of facing separation from the Father. 2 Corinthians five twenty one says that God made him who had no sin... To be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is facing God's wrath being poured out upon him for your sins and for my sins. And in the weight of this darkness, in the weight of what feels like separation, in this aloneness, the scriptures say that Jesus staggers. That Jesus is anticipating the moment when the prophetic words of the prophet Isaiah 53 would become reality. In which Isaiah would say, surely he took upon our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. And you go on to say, the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Now, this is the place in this story in which for many people, for many Christians and many non-Christians alike, where someone will declare, I don't like the idea of the wrath of God. I want a God of love. And the truth is this, you can't have one without the other. It's impossible to have a loving God who does not grow angry. At least not if he's holy. What kind of love allows their loved one to be abused and misused and sinned against and does nothing about it? What kind of person does that? Why do we experience righteous anger At the sight of mistreatment of a loved one. Why? Because of love. If we dismiss God's wrath, then we have no understanding of the value He's placed on us. He loved us enough to right our wrongs by sending His only Son, Jesus. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is struggling. So deeply in his humanity that he asked the father if there is another way to right this wrong. Could this cup pass from me? If there is another way to rescue the world from sin, then father, please do it. The circumstances of his life were waging war with what the desires of his heart were. And I think that we can learn an awful lot from Jesus in this moment, in this experience, when the circumstances of our lives don't satisfy the present desires of our hearts. We can do what Jesus did. He leaned into the will of the Father, and he declared, not my will, but your will be done. How was Jesus able to do that? You see, Jesus understood that oftentimes, and I want you to listen. I want you to hear this. Jesus understood that oftentimes what seemed to be our deepest desires are really just our loudest desires. What seemed to be our deepest desires are really just our loudest desires. You see, Jesus knew that As horrible as the cup was, his immediate desire to be spared had to bow to his ultimate desire, which was to spare us and to live in obedience to his Father. Jesus turns to God and he declares, not what I will, but what you will. And in that statement, he's saying, I trust you no matter what I'm feeling Right now, I know that ultimately your desires are my desires. Let's look at that for just a minute. When we think about our own hearts and our own lives, I want us to just notice for a moment what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus didn't suppress his desires. He didn't deny his emotions. He did not try to become detached. He didn't try to power through his sorrow. In fact, he did the very opposite. He's pouring his heart out to God. Because to eliminate desire altogether is to eliminate our ability to love. And so it's very important that we feel our feelings. And just like Jesus, that we pour them out to God. He can handle them. Jesus can handle the desires of our heart. He can handle our struggles, our loneliness. He can handle our depression. Say, how can he handle them? Because he has felt them. And I am convinced that he has felt them in a much deeper and darker way than we will ever feel them. That's what this story teaches us. You may not believe that. I think only the Spirit can show us that as we really truly come to understand the cup. Jesus didn't suppress his desires. But I want you to notice that he also didn't surrender to his desires. He didn't give up. He didn't give up. He didn't give in. He didn't cave in or run or or fall away or say, I'm going to change my circumstances. Most certainly, he he could have. It's the 11th hour. He could have said, I've changed my mind. He had the right. He had the ability. But that's what many of us do. Many people have a pattern of getting out of dodge at the first hint of any kind of suffering in their life. That's what many of us do. So many of us will suppress our desires. We'll just put our head down and say, I'm going to power through this, which never works. Desire is always going to come out in an unhealthy way when we do that. And then there's others of us that just say, at the first hint of suffering, I will do whatever it takes to change my circumstances. I will run. I will flee. I will get out of Dodge to avoid suffering at any cost And for some people, that even means turning away from God. Turning away from God in an attempt to escape suffering. How foolish we are. But Jesus knew the most valuable lesson about suffering and desire. That ultimately, his desires would only be satisfied in the Father. He knew his his desires would ultimately only be satisfied in the Father. And that every other lesser desire in our lives is meant to point us to our ultimate desire, which is God. To live in an obedient and loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. To live in an obedient and loving relationship with our Heavenly Father, who is truly our, the only true source of joy. You see that mimicked in society today in the relationships that sons and daughters have, particularly with their fathers. And I think it's a shadow of the ultimate relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. All of you know, in a, in a generalized sort of way, um, a, da- a daughter who did not... Um, come to feel and understand the loving acceptance of a dad who loved them unconditionally. And all of you know someone who ran at a very young age because that relationship didn't exist in their life and they attempted to replace that relationship with another man. You know someone like this. You know this story plays itself out time and time and time again, and it ends terribly. And then at the same time, each of you know a young man that you look at and you see his drivenness. And that drivenness might have even served him well at some point in life, but this drivenness in which he can never be satisfied, he can never have enough, he never knows when to pull back, Because he never had a deep connection with a dad who said, you are enough. I am proud of you. And he lives endlessly throughout his life in order to satisfy the ghost of a relationship with a father. Maybe even a father who doesn't exist anymore. Maybe a father who's passed away. Maybe a father who doesn't even appreciate the values that he's living out in his life. We each desire That ultimate intimate relationship with our heavenly father. We see it expressed with our earthly fathers. Because that relationship is the only true relationship that brings deep satisfaction. Intimacy and joy. And so Jesus chose to trust and obey. He said not what I will but what you will. Because of what Jesus went through, you will never experience your own Gethsemane. Because of what he did. Spurgeon said it this way. Spurgeon said, he took the cup of damnation with both hands and he drank it dry. And because of this, you too will be able to trust the Father In your suffering, you will be able to trust that because Jesus took the cup, your deepest desires and your actual circumstances are gonna find their eternal fulfillment in the eternal love of your Father. You're gonna be able to find that. No love for family, no love for friend, no love for a spouse. No love for children, no romantic love will ever be able to satisfy you like the love of the Father. And Jesus teaches us that. All these other loves will fail. Jesus never will. I want to invite our musicians and those who are serving communion to come up and today we're reminded as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, we're reminded because Jesus drank the cup of wrath, we today can drink the cup of love. His blood poured out for us. Will you pray with me? Jesus, today as we're reminded of your sacrifice for us, God, we're pressed deeper into your story. We see, God, that even though the crucifixion was torturous, and we see that it was, it was gruesome, but, God, the mental, the emotional agony that you went through for us, the cup that you drank, God's wrath poured out on you in order that God could look at each of us. And, oh, God, might we not waste your sacrifice by believing that we have to earn God's favor. God, I pray for Christians who are in the room right now who don't sense your love for them. I pray for those who have asked for forgiveness and they don't understand your kindness to them. God, I pray for my own heart where I don't believe your mercy and grace has been poured out on me. And God, we pray right now that we would just have an overwhelming sense of your love for us not because of us, but because of Jesus. And Father, I pray for those who are in that scary place of denying you. God, I pray for those individuals who have not trusted you with their life, who have not confessed their sin to you, who have not begged that you would be the Lord of their life. God, I pray that they would see the kind of wager that they are making. I pray that they would see the kind of fear and guilt and wrath that they are under. And God, I pray that they would cry out to you today, Jesus, to rescue them and save them, so and they would find eternal life. Father, as we come to your table today, we're reminded that we come not because we must, but because we may. Father, thank you for your presence, and thank you for your love. And Father, thank you for your only Son, Jesus, whom you sacrificed, that we might find intimacy communion, that we might find eternal joy with you, God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.